left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. We really focus on amenities to give them some pizzazz and any exterior improvements that we need to make. Maybe it's a siding replacement, balconies, that sort of thing. What we end up with is a product that mimics Class A. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have Lee Harris with us. He's the president and CEO of Cohen Esri, a family of companies involved in apartment management, affordable housing development, apartment acquisition and ownership, tax credit syndication and construction. Lee started working at Cohen Esri right after graduation from Kansas State in 1975, so he has been doing this for a while. Lee, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it very much. Really glad you're here. You know, the first question I always ask is, what's your journey? And I realize that you've had a, kind of a long one with the same company, which is amazing. A lot Most people don't do that anymore. Um, so I'd really like to hear a little bit about your journey, how you got into real estate right out of college, and what you've been doing since then. Yeah, so the journey actually began in the eighth grade. I don't think I've told you this before. And I remember taking a a trip to Mexico City with my parents and my sister. It would have been 1967, 68 timeframe. And I took a bunch of slides. Back then you took Kodachrome slides. And when I I looked at them more recently and I noticed that every single picture was of a big building in Mexico City. And I just had an affinity for buildings and construction. And I remember writing a letter to my grandmother thanking her for a a Christmas gift and mentioning how we had a new six-story bank building that had been constructed in Manhattan, Kansas, where I grew up. So for whatever reason, beginning in the eighth grade or so, I was enamored with real estate and I got a real estate license while I was in college, sold some houses, did a small development deal. I thought I was going to go to work for a developer, a shopping center developer out of college. And that was would have been in 1975, and that job did not materialize. And thankfully, 
Bob Esri, who is a young upstart real estate entrepreneur, took a chance on me, a 21-year-old kid, hired me to manage a 234-unit apartment complex in Topeka, Kansas. And effectively, my training was, here's your desk, here's your phone, lots of luck, you're on your own. And it was a miserable first three months. I got to tell you, everything went wrong. I'd never lived in an apartment complex. I'd seen them from the street, but I'd never lived in one. And here I was supposed to be managing one. And I really, I beat the pavement for the first 90 days looking for a real job in Topeka, Kansas, which is where we had moved to, to take this position. And thankfully, in 1975, there just were no jobs. So here we are, finally figured out time to get my act together. And that's what we did. And one thing led to another. And here I am today. Well, that's great. Again, 46 years of the same company. I mean, I'm sure you've been in different roles. Can you talk about some of the different real estate investments or theses you guys have had over the 46 years? Because I assume you haven't been doing the same exact thing the whole time. So what are some of the assets you've been into and some of the investments you, that you've done both on the good side and the bad side? Sure. So Cohen Esri was actually two companies. The Esri company, which is where I got my start, and the Cohen company, which was a, more of a brokerage, commercial leasing and brokerage firm. The Esri company was a property management organization, and we did a little bit of a stock swap by 1970s. We owned a little of the Cohen company, they owned a little of us, and so we partnered on a lot of things and then did a merger in 1987 of, of Equals. And we had a very significant commercial leasing and brokerage and property management operation, apartments, office buildings, shopping centers, industrial, et cetera. And over the, over the decades, we made some one-off investments here and there, owned office buildings, owned shopping centers, owned some industrial property, some raw land, as well as apartments. And I will tell you that apartments have been the best performer for us over the many years. Office buildings, if it's a multi-tenant office building, it was really a challenge to make the deals work when you have tenants moving out and you have the commission expense and you have the, the tenant improvements that are required the next time somebody moves in. So fortunately, we didn't get too heavily into office building investments. We did develop some small shopping centers with a convenience store and some local tenants. And uh, we had a grocery uh, anchored store in one of our shopping centers. And the retail did okay for us. It wasn't stellar. Industrial probably did better than the retail. We had, a, some again, some smaller 100,000 square foot type of retail operations. But the real impetus for return on investment came through apartment investing. And that's what Bob Esri and I have, have really been focused on uh, since the, the mid-2000s and in a much more programmatic way since 2010. So again, apartments have really outshone the rest of the investment uh, opportunities. We made the mistake in 2006 of getting involved in a subdivision. It was a small subdivision, large lots. We sold a couple, three of those right out of the blocks, and then the world came to an end and 2008 or so. And we carried that deal. We had investor money in there. We carried that deal for several years and finally got out of it about three or four years ago. But it cost me, I don't know, six or $700,000. And I got every nickel of the investor money back to them, which I felt was very important, even though I didn't guarantee that. And that taught me never, ever to jump into the <laughs> subdivision business. So that's probably the worst investment we made. 
Okay. So the best has been multifamily. The worst has been the subdivisions. So when you say you've gotten into multifamily in a programmatic way, can you explain what you mean by that? Absolutely. So as opposed to buying a one-off property here or there, we've developed a real thesis now around what we call the value-add space. And we've coined a term called the best B. So B-class property would be a, an apartment community that was built in the 1980s, mid to late 1980s, all the way up to 2015, perhaps. And we have targeted specific markets that are in generally Sunbelt and Midwest regions. We don't invest in the Northeast. We don't invest on the West Coast. Those are markets that are so specialized, we don't understand them. And we're looking for population growth. We're looking for job growth. We're looking for class B rent growth in those markets. And then on a much more again, programmatic basis. When we find an asset we like, we're paying attention to the median income, the household income in a one and three mile radius. We're looking at crime statistics. We're looking at school districts and how they stack up. And so it's very intentional. We're looking at 350 units is pretty much the sweet spot. We're going to spend 3000 to $8,000 a unit on physical improvements, such as uh, unit interior features, plank style flooring, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances. We really focus on amenities to give them some pizzazz and any exterior improvements that we need to make. Maybe it's a siding replacement, balconies, that sort of thing. What we end up with is a product that mimics class A. So if a person is a class B renter, and let's say that there's overbuilding in a particular market and the rents roll back in the class A space, Usually what's happened in my experience is that people move up. Class B renters say, oh, I can now rent for $75 or $100 more of that class A space. That's great. Let's do it. However, today that differential between class A and class B rents is $500 and more in markets all across the country. So if there's overbuilding in class A, which we're not seeing, by the way, but if and when that happens, we don't expect the rents to roll back $300 or $400. And our approach is a margin of safety approach. So even if there is that tendency to move up, we're giving everybody exactly what they would get in a class A product, maybe not the nine foot ceiling if we haven't figured out how to raise the ceilings to nine feet, but for the most part, everything else they can get for much less money in our product set. So again, much more intentional now about the way we go about selecting our, our properties that we buy and in terms of what, how we execute on a strategy than the old days when it was by something that we thought was a good deal on a one-off basis. And why is there such a spread between the Class A rents and the Class B rents today? Well, so there's been this confluence of demographics that is really interesting. And again, I've never seen it in the whole 46-year career of mine. And that is that we have baby boomer, the baby boomer generation, my generation, used to be an 80% home ownership cohort. A lot of baby boomers as they retire are selling their homes, moving into apartments so they can have more freedom and they can uh, travel, whatever. And that number is now down to 77%. Each percent is about a 1 million people. So it's a big number. Secondly, we have the millennial generation, which is even larger than the boomers. Our boomer generation used to be about 78 million. It's about 70 and a half million people right now. 
the millennial generation is, is a 72 million person cohort. And we're seeing a little bit of an uptick in home ownership there. It started at about 35%. Now they're up to 42% or so. But a lot of them are renters by choice, which is different than it was 30 years ago when I was that age. And people like the lifestyle. They do have student debt issues. They've got credit score issues. They don't have enough saved for down payments for homes. And they like the lifestyle. So and getting married later, having kids later, all of that's working in favor of an apartment lifestyle. And then the third generational cohort, which is 65 million and growing population, is what I call the Zoomers or Generation Z. That's 18 to 24, 25 years old, and they are a traditional renter market. Therefore, we have three large generational cohorts that are colliding here, creating demand like we've never seen. And as a result, we are not keeping pace in any way, shape, or form with the demand. I believe we delivered in 2020 275,000 directionally, 275,000 units of multifamily in this country. And we need consistently 425,000 units every year, year in and year out, and we're just not delivering it. And how do we catch up? Part of the problem, I think, in 2008 was everything was overbuilt. So how did it get underbuilt so quickly? Is it just a reaction to 2008 that we just haven't caught up with it yet? That's a good part of it. Same thing with home construction has never come back to pre-2008 levels. So we're seeing in the single family market, we're seeing this pressure, upward pressure on prices, and it's pricing a lot of people out of the home ownership market, which from my standpoint as an apartment guy is fine because it used to be we competed heavily against the home ownership. We compete less so now. People still move from apartments into homes, single family homes, but it's not as pronounced as it used to be. And as a result, it just continues to put the pressure on the apartment industry. And it's hard to find, especially in larger metropolitan areas, it's hard to find developable land. It's hard to get approvals. We have the NIMBY, the not in my backyard crowd in every city, in every neighborhood. There are people that don't want to see multifamily. And as a result, it's just become harder and harder as the years go by to, to find good locations for apartments. We have a development unit that's principally involved in affordable housing. And I can tell you that affordable housing, we are about 6 million dwelling units short in supply for affordable housing. We will never catch up in my lifetime for affordable housing. We can build brand new properties for $1,600, $1,700 a month rents. Affordable people that are teachers, people that are nurses and different professions cannot afford that. Through the affordable housing programs, the, particularly the tax credit, the affordable housing tax credit program that provides a development subsidy to folks like us, we can deliver that same construction for $850, $900 a month. And that's a tremendous program. And we utilize that heavily. We're on track to build 2,500 to 3,000 units a year using that program in the affordable sector. And then we, we buy the market rate class B product, probably 25 to 100 to 3,000 units a year is our target there as well. Hey, Left Fielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications 
to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. You mentioned that the sweet spot for the ones that you're buying, the class B, is 350 units. So what is the difference between buying, you know, those are large apartment complexes, right? And you go larger, I know as well. So what's the difference between that and 150 unit, both on the why are you targeting these larger ones? And also on the sale, is the person or company you're selling to, is that a different buyer when you sell those assets? Yes. So it's about efficiency of operation economies of scale. So a 350 in a property, we can bring in a, a property manager, an on-site manager that will pay more, obviously, there than we would for 150 units. I'm not saying it's a higher quality person, but it's probably somebody with more experience and perhaps a higher skill set. And we can ha- hire assistant property managers and leasing agents and have a maintenance team. 150 units is barely the size necessary to get any kind of efficiency in the economy of scale. So that's the reason that we target the larger properties. The other thing that helps in that regard is when it comes time to sell, there is a lot of demand. There's a lot of capital. There's a huge amount of capital out there right now that are chasing deals. And there are fewer people chasing 150 unit deals that are willing to bid up the price than there are chasing 350 unit deals and are willing to bid up the price. So what we found this year, in fact, we've begun selling some of the assets we purchased five years ago, and we would have hundreds, literally hundreds, two or 300 inquiries through the brokers on a particular deal that we're selling. Say 300, we sold a 350 unit property in Atlanta, and I think we had 250 or 300 inquiries, probably had 40 memorandums of, of under, uh, confidentiality agreements that we signed. And I think the, we had 25 or 30 bids, literally, because these were larger inst- institutional types of buyers that had a ton of capital. They had to get out the door and they just bid the price up to the point. I think we ended up with a 27 or 28 percent internal rate of return on that asset when we sold it. And had that been 150 units, we wouldn't have had nearly as many bidders and uh, not as much interest in bidding up the price. Okay. And when you sell these properties, you know, I hear a lot of syndicators that they want to leave meat on the bone, right? You talked about doing upgrades of $3,000, $8,000 per unit. Are you upgrading everything and then delivering this as a new upscale, high class B property that someone can just buy and manage? Or do you leave things undone so that the next person can come in and has something to do so they can force equity as well? Sure. So our holding period is five years. We have a little bit of play there. We've actually sold some assets quicker than that because we had executed our plan and decided there just wasn't any more upside for our investor group. And yes, we leave, as you call it, meat on the bone. What we'll do is come in and typically we look at a a property that we're buying that's already proven that there is some rent lift with certain physical improvements and the previous owner left the meat on the bone for us, we'll come in and we'll do a certain percentage of those units and leave room for further rent growth 
for the next buyer. So that's a proven strategy that works. And it's something that's employed by a number of us uh, in, the, in the industry. And so when, when does that end, that cycle end, right? If, if you're, because it's basically, it's a five-year flip, right? Instead of a flipping a house, you're flipping a, an apartment complex, I guess. And every five years, if it changes hands, who's the final buyer when it's all complete, done and redone? Or is it they redo them again? They redo them again. We've we've not seen the end yet. <laughs> and, you know, if, if we do, say we do 20 or 25% of the property, maybe 30% at the most, because we are renovating, many of us in this industry renovate on turnover. And if you, and we've seen turnover actually reduced during the COVID period. So what might have been a 50, 55% turnover rate, we may be down 38, 40%, something like that. And we're not necessarily going to do every single unit uh, that turns over, but maybe we do a total of 30 to 40% of the property, and then it's going to be the next guy that comes. So if it's every five years like this, you can imagine that there's going to be a need eventually for some of those units that were done 10 years ago to be upgraded again, and the rents continue to go up because there's just not enough supply. And you said the supply problem is going to be there for a long time. So you see the future of multifamily being fairly unlimited, that, that it's just going to keep being a good place to put your money in your estimation. I think so. There's definitely going to be overbuilding somewhere along the line. It's not necessarily going to be a national overbuilding kind of a situation. Some markets, they have plenty of land and a friendly government may be able to put a few more units in production and there could be some localized overbuilding. But I don't see in the next 10 years, for example, I just don't see that we're going to catch up. So we got a good run going here. This might be a question that might be for somebody else. So it's interesting to me that, you know, you're in the Southeast and you're in the Midwest, right? Because you, as you said, you don't want to do the Northeast, you don't want the West Coast. And it's because of, you know, just the markets there. So who's building properties or rehabbing properties or buying properties? And somebody, there's a lot of apartments in New York, right? And California. So who's doing those? And when is it going to kind of shift where those become the markets that are in favor for investors like us? Yeah, there are plenty of developers and sponsors in the Northeast and on the West Coast. There's no shortage of, of folks. In fact, there's probably more interest in the coast's than there is in the Southeast and the Midwest, believe it or not. So it's just, again, a preference of ours because of the complexity. Now, we don't understand rent control, and they have rent control in, in New York. I think they may have rent control in San Francisco. And we just that's just something that we don't want to try to tackle. We're a bread and butter type of thesis. We think some great differentiators that set us apart as a sponsor and as far as our product is concerned and we don't want to try to get into those markets that others understand better than we do and there are plenty of sponsors that do understand those markets right that makes sense so you partner on your uh, multifamily with family office institutional money and then you have a fund that you save basically 10 percent of the equity for individual investors can you talk a little bit about why, well, two things, and, and we've had this conversation before, but why do you partner with a family office for the bulk of the equity raise? And then really the second question is, why bother with 10% from people like me? 
Good question. So we're all about relationships and family office is actually a multi-family office. I think there are five or 10 families that are involved in this operation. We've had a relationship there for 30 years. And this particular group was heavy into operating companies and then decided it was time to shift away from operating companies. And they wanted to go into more of a real estate heavy portfolio. And therefore, we had ongoing conversations with them on several fronts. We had provided some tax credit to tax credits to them uh, for them once upon a time. And anyway, they like us, they like what we're doing, and we have a real comfortable relationship. They trust us and we trust them. I cannot emphasize this is not a transactional business that we're in. It's a relationship business. And therefore, we brought them to the dance and we're going to go home with them. (laughs) And likewise, we have another couple of institutional types of groups that we've had longstanding relationships with as well. But there is an interesting trend that has developed over the years that the LP investors like to see some skin in the game on the part of the sponsor. And in our case, they allow us to do a fund. We have our own money in the fund. So we have our own skin in the game, but we're able to expand our relationships by offering this opportunity to, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, an investment, which may sound like a lot, and it is. We have a $26.5 million fund open right now. And you might say, well, $200,000 a copy is, <laughs> that's a, a lot of folks. But we've got one investor with $6 million in the fund. We've got another with a million, and he's going to put another million in. We have some four hundred dollars and $600,000 investors. And you never know where that $200,000 investor or even a group of investors may end up. It could be larger than that. But again, to us, it's all about the relationships. And so I love the fact that we're able to include many other investors that are on a smaller scale in our program. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm, I'm glad you are too. You know, as, as you know, we're, uh, we're doing a, a group investment through left field investors to get into the fund. And, and so that, that's pretty exciting for us as well. So you mentioned the fund. Why the fund model versus individual asset model? And I know a lot of people are switching that used to do individual. They're doing funds now. And so how long have you been doing fund approach and, and why do you prefer that over individual asset? Yeah. So this is the second fund like this that we've launched. And what the fund does is it gives diversification. So you have multiple assets and you have multiple markets. And we think that that helps the risk profile immensely. Now, there is some homogenous nature to the product. I mean, it's class B workforce type of product. But again, if we have 15, 16 assets or 17, 18 assets in the fund, then every investor, a $200,000 investor, if you put $200,000 into one property, you're tied to that property's success or failure. If you put $200,000 into the fund, and by the way, the fee is, we charge a 1% annual fee on assets under management. That's it. There's no other load or anything else. Therefore, you get the exposure to, let's say, 15 assets in potentially 15 markets. It could be less because sometimes we do buy properties in multiple properties in the same market. San Antonio comes to mind because it's a hot market. But that gives this diversification considerable weight to us. And I think that's the primary reason that we recommend 
moving away from, unless you've got a huge amount of capital and you want to buy individual assets, it makes a lot of sense to go into a fund approach and, and spread the risk. Okay. Now, we've been talking a lot about multifamily, but you mentioned tax credits and you've mentioned tax credit syndication before, and that's something new to me. Can you explain what that is and who would have a use for it? Sure. So there is a section 42 of the Internal Revenue Code that provides an affordable housing tax credit. It's a development subsidy. It's not a rent subsidy for the resident, but it's a development subsidy for us as a developer. And what that does is it requires us to rent apartments to people at 60% or less of the area median income. It requires that we adhere to rent caps that they go up every year based on some black box the government uses. But there is an increase that can occur. And of course, that rent is adjusted for family size. So that's also helpful as well. But by providing this development subsidy, we are able to buy down the cost, theoretically, of the project, even though it costs exactly the same to build, whether it's affordable or market rate, we're able to, to subsidize through our taxpayers uh, the development cost this way. But who can use those credits? If you have passive income generating a, a tax liability, you can use these tax credits only against it. You can't use it against your active income. So there are insurance companies, there are corporations, there are banks that typically are C-corps, C-corporations that are able to utilize these tax credits against their tax liability. There are a few really, really high net worth individuals with very large passive income generating portfolios that could use these, but not at the level that we would need to build 150 to 300 units. So typically we're working, right now we're working with Bank of America, for example. We're working with some syndicators that pool investors, corporate investors together to invest in these projects. Okay. That, that's interesting because I'd, I'd always wondered what that was. And uh, that, that, that's a good explanation. I was looking at your, uh, your website and, and you have a blog. And it's interesting to me because you've worked for the same company as, as we've talked about for 46 years, and that your blog is titled An Entrepreneur's Words to Live By. So can you talk a little bit about are you, how your blog focuses on, on your perspective as an entrepreneur, but you've worked for the same company for 46 years? And that's not to say you can't have that kind of mentality inside of a company, but I'd like to just kind of hear how'd you come up with that idea for a blog and what's your thought as far as an entrepreneur that's working inside of a long-established company. Sure. So I've loved to write for my whole life. And this particular blog was actually, I wrote a book called An Entrepreneur's Words to Live By, which you can get on Amazon. Uh, a little plug there. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. It's that I, I wrote it to have fun. I did not write it necessarily to try to make a bunch of money. But it's life lessons that I've learned over 46 years. And one of the things, even though I've only had one company experience from a career standpoint, I've been a part of a mentoring program uh, since 2006, 2005, actually. It's the Hellsberg Entrepreneurial Mentoring Program based in Kansas City, started by Barnett Hellsberg, who had a jewelry store chain and sold it to Warren Buffett and made a gazillion dollars. And 
He's reinvested some of that money in entrepreneurs and in and around Kansas City. And I've had the very good fortune of being a mentor with many budding entrepreneurs over the years. I had one entrepreneur who, when I started mentoring him in 2009, I think he had a $10 million in sales business. And this year he's set to do 250 to $300 million in revenue. So that warms my heart. But I've learned so much from other people along the way that I've been able to mentor. So it's not just been a one-way street for me. It's two-way street. I, they learn from me. I learn from them. And that's really cool. Yeah, that's the best way, right? I mean, I started uh, Left Field Investors thinking that I was going to share my knowledge with, with my friends and some former financial advising colleagues or clients. And what I've gotten out of it is much more than I've put in. I've learned so much just from conversations with different people, whether they're just starting out or whether they're super experienced. So I think that's really neat that you're, you know, you've been in this business for 46 years and you're helping others, but you also allow them to give back and and help you in the conversation as well. Absolutely. And I would also say that the experience over the years has been fascinating internally. We have so many wonderful team members and colleagues, and I learn from them every day as well. But the thing that I think is is most important to me is that we maintain that entrepreneurial spirit, even though we become a larger, we're not a huge company, but we're large from the larger from the standpoint of infrastructure, systems, processes. But I'm always challenging, uh, hey, do we really need to do it this way? Where's the entrepreneurial spirit in this? And And that's been with the team anyway, that's been contagious. And so we have a lot of people talking about entrepreneurship and and how do we avoid becoming too too bureaucratic? Yeah, and I, I think probably that's what enabled your company to last for forty six years and and keep going, right? Is to have that sense of always looking for the the next thing while mastering the current thing. You know, it's very important to keep that entrepreneurial spirit going because that's how you figure out. You know, that's how you stay with the times. That's how you stay current or even get ahead of it. Exactly. Exactly right. So the last question I always ask is, I don't know if you're a podcast listener or not, but if you are, what's a great podcast that you listen to, whether real estate, business, or anything else? And you can give a couple if you have them. Sure. I'm going to give you three. (laughs) Two of them are our own podcasts. We have the CEAI, stands for Culinary Apartment Investors Podcast. My partner, Lydia Kincaid, who's a fund manager, is the moderator. And Ryan Huffman, who's my partner and chief operating officer in our companies, the three of us riff regularly on a podcast about apartment investing. And then we have another one called the IIM podcast that stands for Innovation in Motion, which is a little venture unit of ours that uh, invests in early stage companies in agribusiness, animal health, and human health. We've been fairly successful there. And Lydia is also the managing director of that business unit. So those are two podcasts I like because I'm part of them. And the other one is called the All In Podcast. And it's four guys that are in the venture world. Chamath Palihapitiya, who's a billionaire investor, does a lot of SPAC work. David Friedberg, Jason Calacanis, who's a, an early stage uh, angel investor. And David Sachs, who's well known for PayPal. And these guys get together once a week and have a lively discussion not just about the venture world, but about politics and life in general. And I really enjoy that and, and look forward. It's one of the top top rated podcasts in all of podcasting right now. Well, those are great. I'll put all three of those on my uh, playlist. I'm always looking for, for new things to listen to. So that's fantastic. 
So this has been awesome. I really appreciate you being on the show. If listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so my email address is lharris at cohenesrey.com, C-O-H-E-N-E-S-R-E-Y. And that's probably, I'm not on Twitter. So best way to do it is to just send me an email and I'll, uh, I'll get back to you. Okay, perfect. I'll put that in the show notes along with your book and the podcast recommendation. So again, thank you very much for the conversation. We, uh, we really appreciate it. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Very good. Thank you. It was fascinating to talk to someone with the experience of Lee. He's been in the business since the 70s and also with the same company. So it's safe to say they, they figured something out, right? They have a very defined, what they call programmatic buy box for the apartments. It's very intentional on the strategy and what they buy. And I think that definitely gives you some comfort when you're investing with them because they're not going to go outside of their buy box and it's defined and they've done it before and it's just repeat. I really like the conversation he's talking about the boomers, the millennials, and what he calls the Zoomers. They're all looking for apartments. And normally the age cohort would be Zoomers that are looking for it, but millennials and boomers are into it as well, which drastically increases the demand for apartments. Usually the boomers and millennial age cohorts are homeowners, but there's a larger share now that are looking for apartments, not only because of affordability, but also because of lifestyle. They like the ease of rentals. You know, he talked also about their preference for the larger apartments, 350 units and above due to economies of scale, full-time employees, all that makes sense. It was interesting also, he said they do that because it's easier to sell those large deals because of the amount of institutional capital looking for yield in stabilized large apartments. So they are prepping their properties for sale. And as he said, they try to leave some meat on the bone for the next person, the next investor, so they don't renovate all the units. They renovate just on turnover. And then they make them real nice. You know, they almost make them class A in class B apartments. And then they leave some for the next buyer to renovate so that they have rent growth for that for that next owner. It was also interesting that they get the bulk of their equity from family offices. So they have these big institutional family offices investing in their apartments. And what a great thing to leave 10% open for smaller investors so we can invest alongside of these institutional investors. So we, we get an advantage because now we're you're allowed to invest alongside the big guys, which is a great benefit, I think, to the smaller investors. So enjoy the conversation with Lee. He's been around so long. He really knows his stuff. And it was, it was kind of him to share that information with us. That's it for this time. And we'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.